very warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us for a star-spangled holiday edition of the programme. US markets closed for Independence Day, but do not dismay. We continue to go forth. There's plenty to survey. On Wall Street, stocks still looking spry as we head into July. The major averages ending Monday's shortened session in the green, thanks to rallies in Tesla and other EV names. A Yankee Doodle dandy year so far for US investors too. The best first half for tech, in fact, since 1983. The Nasdaq now up 32% since January, and NVIDIA providing some of the real fireworks this year, up some 190% thanks to all the AI, the artificial intelligence euphoria. And another stock cruising ahead, Carnival, up more than 130%. Investors of all shapes and sizes, stars and stripes, gearing up for the Q2 earnings parade in just a few weeks' time. And other challenges to flag include perhaps another Fed rate hike later this month. Plus, jobs data this Friday. Is the labour market still as hot as a holiday barbecue grill? Well, later in the show, we'll be grilling Eric Kaufman, the founder and CEO of Shareholders Food, a pioneer in 3D printed food. Did you and can you see a plate of printed fish or meat in your future 4th of July or any other holiday for that matter? Feast? Maybe. Lots to chew over too in Europe and Asia today. A mixed bag, as you can see, the Australian Central Bank taking a page from the Fed Chair Jerome Powell's playbook and announcing a hawkish rate hike pause. No holiday pause, though, for U.S.-China trade tensions. The Wall Street Journal says the U.S. is set to restrict Chinese access to U.S. cloud services, a possible blow to Amazon and Microsoft. All this as China restricts exports of metals used in chip and electric car production. An interesting time indeed for Treasury Secretary Yellen's trip to Beijing. That's expected to begin on Thursday. As you can see, lots to get to, as always, on the show. But we do begin with the latest from Israel. And at least eight people have been injured after a car struck pedestrians at a shopping centre in Tel Aviv. Police say the driver then left the vehicle and began attacking people before an armed civilian killed him. It comes as an Israeli military operation in the city of Jenin continues for a second straight day. It's Israel's largest offensive in the West Bank in more than 20 years. And joining us now, Elliot Gopkin. Elliot, good to have you with us. I believe in the last few moments, Hamas have claimed responsibility for that attack in Tel Aviv. What more can you tell us? Well, this attack in Tel Aviv happened uh, just kind of uh, on the kind of far northeast of uh, Tel Aviv. Um, and uh, the car, as, as you were saying, the car was uh, driven, according to uh, the IDF, was driven by someone from uh, a town near, near Hebron in the West Bank, uh, that he drove into uh, this bus stop. And you can see the kind of mangled ruins of uh, this car. And then also knocking over some of the people. There was a bike lane where there were people biking and scooting past and then got out of the car and then began trying, began uh, stabbing people. So some quite graphic uh, security camera footage um, that we've seen, which shows almost the entirety of the attack playing out and then chased after people as they were kind of running uh, away um, from from the attacker. So that's what happened there. There are eight injuries, as you say. They're all in hospital. Uh, and I don't think it's necessarily a surprise uh, that uh, there was an attack of this nature in the wake of this ongoing uh, operation by Israel into Jenin. Julia? 
Yeah, I was going to say to you, no surprise perhaps in, in response to what we're seeing. Earlier today, we had the IDF saying that they had 10 more sites to search in Janine. Do we have any sense of, of progress of how far they've got in this operation and how long it might last? How long it might last is how long is a piece of string, Julia. Yeah. Uh, they said it could last a, a few more hours. It could last another day. We really do not know. It is an open-ended operation. They did say there were 10 more targets. They specified that, that were, they were infrastructure targets. It's been targeting to begin with uh, when this operation began almost 40 hours ago. Uh, it was a UAV strike on what it described as a command and control post used by the militants of the Janin Brigade who are affiliated with Islamic Jihad. They said that this post was also used as an observation post and also as a refuge for militants after carrying out attacks, they would flee back there. So that was the first target. And Israel says that it took uh, the militants engine in by surprise with that. Since then, it has, it says, been uh, discovering and destroying and or confiscating weapons storage facilities, weapons manufacturing sites, uh, and uh, also confiscating things such as uh, grenade launchers and the like. And I'm sure you've seen these, we've seen these uh, quite graphic images of Israeli bulldozers kind of tearing up the streets of the Jinnian refugee camp, it says in order to get rid of uh, improvised explosive devices. Indeed, it says just a short while ago that uh, it had uh, destroyed 11 uh, IEDs, which uh, were posing a danger to its troops and also to civilians. Uh, the water and electricity supply was also cut. Israel says uh, that it was working with the Palestinian Authority or coordinating with it to try to get that resumed. But uh, as you say, the, the death toll so far, 10 Palestinians. Israel says that almost all of them are militants, or in fact, all of them were either militants or were in some capacity involved in attacks against their troops. They say that no one involved civilians were killed. Uh, and on top of that, we know from the Palestinian Ministry of Health are about 100 injured, about 20 of those critical. And we've seen those pictures as well of about 3,000 Palestinians leaving their homes in the Jenin refugee camp to get out of harm's way, moving either to other parts of the camp or to Jenin uh, uh, proper. Uh, now, we've seen condemnations from the Palestinian Authority, from the Jordanians, Egyptians and the Emiratis. The United States for its part, has said that it, uh, well, it reiterated its support for Israel's right to defend itself and highlighted the need to ensure that there were no civilian casualties. But of course, the longer this goes on, and as I say, we are now in the 40th hour, almost 40 hours since this began, the longer it goes on, the greater the risk of escalation, not just in Jenin and other parts of the West Bank, but also in other parts where Israel borders, whether it's Gaza, Lebanon or Syria. No doubt Israel is prepared for all eventualities. But of course, as time goes on, the risks will grow too. Julia? Mm. Elliot, good to have you with us. Thank you for that report. Elliot Gotkin there. Now, Russia is accusing Ukraine of launching a terrorist attack, saying Kyiv targeted Moscow with five drones earlier this morning. The Kremlin says all the drones were intercepted and there were no casualties. Matthew Chance joins us now. Matthew, as expected, the Ukrainians sticking to the usual playbook here and no comment from them on this. Yeah, they, they haven't made any comment. And I've reached out to um, sort of groups who operate inside of Russia as well. Um, who are against the Kremlin, and they've not commented on it either. But it's another example of how the war in Ukraine is coming home to roost, as it were, um, inside Russia itself. We saw drone attacks taking place in May. One spectacular one, of course, that actually hit the domes on top of a building inside the walls of the Kremlin. There were, there were suburbs of Moscow that were, that were also hit. And when you add to that the events that were really dramatic last month, uh, the attempted military uprising in, in Russia, uh, led by the Wagner leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, then it, again, it, it just shows you 
that you know Russia looks increasingly unstable, and that will be noticed, of course, by ordinary citizens in the country that up until this period had really been you know, pretty much insulated uh, from the events that were folding next door, the conflict, the special military operation, as the Russians call it, inside Ukraine. Matthew, interesting as you're speaking to your contacts to get a sense of this, are they expecting to see more attempts like this, more drone attacks, to your point about what appears to be an increasing level of vulnerability, despite the fact that you would have expected the Kremlin, I think, to guard itself better in light of what we saw with that drone attack several weeks ago? Well, I mean, those contacts aren't commenting specifically on that, but I I think we can all sort of expect that these kinds of attacks are going to be a sort of feature of, 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 of what's coming. You know, we've seen in May, again, that attack on the, on the Kremlin. We've seen an incursion as well by Russian partisans, people who are identified as Russian citizens, um, moving into um, areas near the, you know, across the border from Ukraine as well and carrying out attacks there. And so while this battle is raging with Ukraine's counteroffensive underway inside Ukraine proper uh, on the front lines there, we are seeing these other operations take place uh, inside Russia. And I think that's become a feature and will continue to be a feature of this ongoing sort of military campaign by Ukraine uh, and its sympathizers inside Russia. Matthew Chance, great to have you with us. Thank you there. Now, Russian President Vladimir Putin at this moment has made a return to the world stage at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit. Addressing the virtual meeting this morning, he thanked supportive nations and said Russia is united after the Wagner Rebellion. The Russian people are consolidated as never before. The solidarity and high responsibility for the fate of the fatherland was clearly demonstrated by Russian political circles and the entire society by coming out as a united front against the attempted armed rebellion. Mark Stewart joins us now. Mark, a key moment for Putin among key allies, those that haven't condemned the war in Ukraine and increasingly important trade partners too. But I would also argue a delicate balancing act for the likes of Xi Jinping of China. Also, Prime Minister Modi of India too, having just been courted in the United States. Friends, but not too friendly. Mm-hmm. Uh, balancing act, another another phrase that we've been using in our reporting today, Julia, has been complex backdrop. I mean, all of these nations, China, India, um, Russia, they all certainly want to show their strength, particularly toward the West, to show that they have some political muscle. Yet there is this there is this line where, you know, they can't push things too much because there is some dependence or some need uh, to, to, to have somewhat cordial, for lack of better words, discussions with the West. I mean, you mentioned China and Xi Jinping. I mean, right now, China, as we both know, as students of China, China is facing a very precarious economic situation. So it is leaning on the West. It is getting ready for a visit by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Yet it's also not directly condemning Russia. It's trying to figure out for lack of better words, the sweet spot. President Xi or Chinese leader Xi did address uh, the organization during its opening meeting today. Uh, Let me just share with you some of the phrasing that was used, um, because I think that also proves an important point. Uh, Xi said today, the world is full of chaos and changes unseen in a century are accelerating. Human society is facing unprecedented challenges. 
unity or division, peace or conflict, cooperation or confrontation. A series of rhetorical questions um, to basically uh, bring up this broader point of the need for win-win cooperation, if you will. Despite all of these statements, though, there is no question that China is going to be very resolute in its approach to all of this. Russia, China and Russia are two of the organizations, two of the, the nations, along with former Soviet republics that formed this SCO alliance, this Shanghai Cooperative Organization. So expect them to stay to script. But to go back to this phrase, Julie, as you brought up before, balancing act, it's just a political necessity in this current global landscape. Absolutely. And we're just showing images, actually, of when they got together back in 2019. Um, easier to perhaps enact that delicate balancing act virtually rather than mm-hmm. in person. Mark Stewart, thank you for that. And on to a warning from the United States regarding travel to China. The State Department urging Americans to reconsider visiting the mainland due to the risk of wrongful detention. Relations between the United States and China remain frosty despite Secretary of State Antony Blinken's trip to Beijing last month. Blinken said he mentioned the three Americans he says China has wrongfully detained, Kylie, Mark Swyden and David Lin, and said talks are taking place to try and secure their release. Kylie Atwood joins us now. Kylie, we will assume that uh, Janet Yellen's trip this week to Beijing is excluded from that warning. Why the shift? Listen, we really don't know the answer as to why this wrongful detention has been listed on this travel advisory as one of the reasons to reconsider travel to China. Uh, But when you read into this actual travel advisory itself, it provides a little bit of hints. And it essentially, you know, demonstrates that the United States believes that Chinese authorities are cracking down more aggressively on U.S. citizens and foreign nationals. And it says that PRC authorities appear to have broad discretion to deem a wide range of documents, data, statistics, or materials as state secrets and use that information that U.S. foreign uh, foreign nationals, American citizens might have to actually detain them. And so while they don't get into a specific incident here that has triggered this, uh, they're basically saying that there is a movement towards crackdown on U.S. citizens that could be dangerous for Americans traveling to China. Now, previously, wrongful detention had been listed as a reason essentially for Americans to be cognizant when they travel to China to exercise increased caution, but not a reason that they should reconsider travel. So it's significant that it's now being listed in that bucket of reasons. Yeah, it's a step up in terms of um, a cautionary response. Can I ask about the U.S. response to what effectively looks like a bounty placed on the head of certain individuals accused of offences under the relatively new national security law in Hong Kong. Now, my understanding is many of these individuals there abroad, the United States, the UK, Canada, Australia, and they're okay where they are. But if they go home, they're clearly at risk of arrest. Yeah, well, the State Department spokesperson, Matt Miller, came out uh, very clearly yesterday and condemned these bounties being placed on the heads of these activists who have spoken out against Beijing's crackdown in Hong Kong and said that the United States is calling for them to immediately revoke these bounties. Now, it's important to note that the extradition treaty that the U.S. used to have with Hong Kong has actually uh, been gotten rid of by the United States because of the laws 
laws that have been enacted in Hong Kong recently when it has to do with national security. So it's not as if the United States is legally required uh, to send any of these activists back to Hong Kong or Beijing. Um, but it's very significant that the United States feels uh, in this statement that this is a crackdown on human rights globally. Uh, they don't think that Hong Kong should be doing this, should be seeking uh, millions of dollars for these activists who are you know, using freedom of speech around the globe to speak up against Beijing's crackdown in Hong Kong. We'll watch and see where this one goes. Um, but the State Department, you know, putting out this statement demonstrates just how closely they are tracking what Hong Kong is doing right now. Yeah. And the suspension of that extradition treaty crucial in this, too. Kylie, great to have you with us. Thank you. Kylie Atwood there. Coming up here on First Move, Nature Nurture. The European Union discussing a bold new plan to help protect and restore biodiversity. But is it a regulatory step too far for some? Plus, making waves. How one company is trying to reel you in with 3D printed fish and more. It's coming up. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to First Move. Crunch time of sorts for Europe's big green dream. The EU Parliament next week decides the fate of a bold new plan called the Nature Restoration Law. It's aimed is to restore nature on 20% of EU land and sea by 2030. Just to give you a sense of this, specific targets include improving and re-establishing biodiverse habitats, reversing the decline of pollinating insects like bees, restoring marine habitats such as seagrass beds. Now, if it becomes law, each EU country will then have to come up with its own plan of action within around two years to ultimately hit those targets in 2030. Now, opposition groups, including members of the Conservative European People's Party, are calling for a delay and an assessment of the impact on sectors like farming and food production. My next guest says Europe cannot afford to wait. And joining us now is Virginius Sincavigis, European Commissioner for the Environment, Oceans and Fisheries. Commissioner, great to have you on the show. Explain why it's so important for Europe to pass this law. First of all, thank you very much uh, for having me, and it's my pleasure. So to begin with, the nature is essential. If mm. we all sign for uh, ambitious climate objectives, in Paris, uh, we see alarming scientists as alarming about uh, the climate change. 
it cannot be solved without uh, nature being able to help us. If we lose natural ecosystems, our forests, soils, uh, or oceans, we are still bust even if we reach uh, zero uh, full decarbonization by 2050. So it's essential as regards fighting climate change. Secondly, when we talk about our food security, non, no farmers can, uh, can or want work on soils that are not fertile, mm. on grounds that are not pollinated uh, by pollinators. So these essential uh, nature functions, we take it for granted. And I think sometimes we forget that we need to take care of nature. Because even if you look at the numbers, not environmental numbers, but numbers that comes from the businesses, World Economic Forum, 50% of the world's GDP depends on nature, especially uh, food sector, uh, of course, construction, and uh, etc. So it's vital for our climate aspiration. It's vital for our economies too. I think, um, and I couldn't agree more with you on the depletion of elements like soil and that making our farming and our food processes that much harder and it will only, I think, get more difficult. But some of the pushback has come from the farming industry, from the agricultural industry, from um, fishermen and, and women. Do you understand their concerns? Because I think the primary concern here is that even in the short term, Never mind the long term. We'll talk about the short term. This could cost jobs. Can you promise that it won't cost jobs? I think, you know, any change always bring in anxiety. Mm. And we are living not an easy uh, period. Uh, we just had COVID where, for example, fishers, uh, they were left uh, without, uh, without a possibility to, 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 to sell the fish. Uh, at the auctions. Uh, and then uh, we have uh, devastating, illegal, unjustified Russia's attack on Ukraine, which puts additional pressure on uh, society. Uh, but what's most important that this legislation has no uh, obligations uh, for individuals, neither for farmer nor for the fisher or forester. On contrary, these people uh, and their business model purely depends on uh, natural ecosystems. And if we lose uh, fertility of soil or we lose our ecosystems in our oceans and, and pristine seas, uh, farmers and fishers are the first ones left without a business model because they, they directly depend on ecosystem values. So I think overall, they are the only ones that have, first of all, uh, to gain and ensure a longevity of, uh, uh, of, their, of their businesses. There were many twisted messages, of course, obligations. We had to discuss it uh, with member states. And I think we have arrived to a, a very suitable compromise, which member states at uh, the council now supported. So I think we are on track uh, to ensure that we are able to have a strong uh, legislation that first of all, yes, it protects and uh, helps uh, to restore nature, but most importantly, it protects people who benefits from nature. Mm. So the, the last vote that was um, held was completely deadlocked. What you're saying now is you're quietly confident that you think this law can pass, that you've, you've reached a compromise that can work for all. 
we reached the compromise at the at the council and uh, right. i of course cannot preempt uh, the uh, position of uh, the european parliament they are still in 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 discussions but i truly hope that uh, parliament will build on a council position because council it's 27 member states so member states they uh, very clearly outline that they are happy with the current um, uh, with the current compromise and they can live with that so they can implement it uh, despite you know the debates that we have have had commission uh, put the uh, uh, additional compromise non-paper which i think uh, worked well but we should not forget one more important detail european union uh, was together with the member state driving force at the cop 15 in montreal where we have reached a global agreement, uh, global biodiversity framework. And in that framework, nature restoration is also featured. And I think, you know, when it comes to a leadership, first of all, you have to deliver that leadership at home. And then, of course, uh, work with other partners to ensure that those global agreements are delivered. So I truly hope that we will stick with what we have agreed, what we kind of supported and where the driving force behind. And then, of course, we will be able to help uh, other parts of the world to implement a uh, global agreement, too. Yeah, I hope you're right. And I agree with you on the leadership at home. The problem is you have to show leadership and get reelected. And I think we are sort of seeing a, a green sort of backlash and it's compromising votes to some extent and it's compromising coalitions. So I do think leaders have this uh, sort of delicate balancing act to find between pushing the things that are right for the planet and also in the short term, after seven very challenging years since 2015, um, protecting people too. And I know you'll say they're the same thing, but it's it's a challenge. No. I want to um, ask you about China, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, and China's sure, decision sure. to restrict um, exports of gallium and germanium. And I believe the EU gets 71% of gallium, 45% of germanium from China. And these are crucial to semiconductor telecommunications and NAV vehicle development, the batteries. Um, how worried are you by those limits and, and the kind of impact that they may have? I think it was very clear from uh, the very beginning of first of all COVID sent a very clear signal that uh, our supply chains uh, are vulnerable and we need to diversify especially when we talk about a crucial components uh, materials that we don't have in the eu and solutions here they are very limited that what you can do you can uh, enhance circularity. So basically what you have already here within the production, you need to use it up to a maximum and ensure uh, that it can be then collected and, uh, uh, and uh, recycled and reused as recycled content again and diversify uh, your supply chains as much as you can. Uh, De-risk it uh, from being dependent on a single source as much as is possible. Third option is very limited in the EU is, of course, opening uh, some mines where, where, where there are such opportunities, but they are extremely, extremely limited and uh, there is very little economic viability yet to that. Yeah, I'm just imagining the environmentalists response to that one, uh, that last one. Uh, Commissioner, I, I think the important point here is recycling. If what we have to make use of what we have and continue to build an infrastructure that enables us to recycle what we have so we can keep using it. Um, I'm out of time. Please come back. 
when you get this law passed. Not that we're preempting anything, <laughs> and we'll talk about the um, positive impacts. Um, Commissioner, thank you once again there. Great to chat to you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you very much for having me. Thank you. Coming up on First Move, the latest from Tel Aviv, where a car hit a group of people at a shopping centre. Our live report next. Welcome back to First Move. I'm returning to one of our top stories today. At least eight people injured after a car drove into pedestrians at a shopping centre in Tel Aviv. Police say the driver then left his vehicle and began stabbing people before an armed civilian then killed him. It comes as Israel's military operation in the city of Jenin continues for a second straight day. It's the largest Israeli offensive in the West Bank in more than 20 years. Hadas Gold joins us now from Tel Aviv. Hadas, I can see the cleanup operation was taking place behind you there, but the damage to what looks like a bus stop clear behind you too. Walk us through what happened. Yeah, we are in northwest Tel Aviv, where this attack took place about three, four hours ago. And right now, the authorities are still cleaning up the scene. They like to clean up these things quite quickly. Israeli police saying that a truck that you can actually see is being loaded right now on a tow truck and being towed out of the area. You can still see quite a bit of the damage on its windshield, on, on its front bu bumper nearly entirely uh, ripped off. Uh, they say that that truck uh, came up, across, up upon the pavement, slamming into pedestrians that were near this bus stop right here that has also sustained quite a bit of damage. And then the attacker got out of the truck and began trying to stab people. Israeli police telling me that an armed civilian, actually an elderly man who happened to be armed, heard the noise, turned around, and shot and killed the attacker. Now, Hamas, the militant group, has claimed the attacker as one of their fighters, and Israeli def an Israeli defense official telling me that he crossed over to Tel Aviv from the occupied West Bank. Now, as soon as this happened, the militant group Hamas taking credit or uh, claim, uh, praising this operation, saying it's in direct response to what's been happening in Janine. Of course, we're in the second day of the largest Israeli military operation in the occupied West Bank since 2002. And while overnight has been less dramatic as perhaps 24 hours before, Israeli military saying that they are reaching every corner of Janine because they say they want to essentially uh, reform Janine from becoming a hornet's nest for what they call militant activity. And they say that this operation could continue for another day, potentially even more. But what that's meant for the civilians there is that their lives are completely disrupted. Roads are completely torn up. Houses, cars are damaged. Electricity and water supply has been affected there. And thousands of Palestinians overnight have fled the refugee camp trying to seek safer ground. Here in Tel Aviv, we know of at least eight people who have been injured as a result of this attack. One of them, critically, police are calling it a terror attack. And it is clearly connected to what's been happening in Jenin that Israeli military, Israeli officials say will not be ending, at least potentially today, and that it could go on for another few days until they believe they've reached what they say are all of their objectives. Julia. Had us gold there. Thank you for that. Okay, coming up here on First Move, something a little fishy on our 4th of July holiday plate this year. We'll introduce you to the company's scaling culinary heights with 3D printed fish and meat. That's next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment... 
the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Move. You've heard about plant-based meats and lab-grown food plenty of times on this show, but what about edible bio-ink? from a printer. Well, that's just part of the technology behind stakeholder foods. The Israel-based biotech company and a Singaporean cellular agriculture startup called Umami Meats have launched the first lab-grown fish fillet using 3D printing techniques. That's what you're looking at here. Now, just to give you a sense, Stakeholders Ready to Cook Printer produces a hybrid product made from cultivated and plant-based ingredients. Then there's also the 3D printer that the food tech industry is calling the Holy Grail. Now, it's designed to produce a product that requires live cells to grow and mature to form a texture and taste that's actually quite similar to real meat, apparently. Now, the fillet, at least, is already creating some excitement, and stakeholder says we could see 3D printed meat which cost parity with traditional products by 2028. So we're talking, what, five years? Okay, let's get the scoop. Joining us now is Eric Kaufman. He's the founder and CEO of Stakeholder Foods. So great to have you on the show. Um, That was a lot of information. So let's just take a step back. Just give me the vision of the company, first and foremost. Where are you headed? And then we'll work backwards. So our vision is to create real meat without slaughtering animals. So we had two assumptions. One assumption is that people will continue and consume meat because that's what we are used to do for forever. And the second assumption is that we need to create meat in a different, more up-to-date way. And our printers that we've developed can do exactly that. They can create real meat, meat without, uh, without, uh, the, the, without hurting the animals. Okay, there's a third whacking great assumption in there, and that is that people are going to be willing to eat a sort of meat substitute. And, and I know you're saying it comes from animal cells, but sort of the process, the concept behind this is um, interesting, alarming. Are you happy to make that assumption? I think that the the whole process with creating cultivated meat is a very transparent process. We know exactly from where the cell is collected. We know exactly what it undergoes until it's printed and it enters our plate. We are creating real meat. So it's not a substitute. It's not something that smells like. It, it is the real deal. I think that the market acceptance at the beginning will have its learning curve. But uh, when one will understand the, the benefits of this product and the taste, uh, I think it, it's the right way that in the future we will consume it. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the technology then. Talk to me about the composition of what goes into the bio-ink that's then used to, to print um, this fish and meat. So, so the whole process is, is tailored. So there's a software that can determine exactly the composition of, of the product. So we can, for instance, decide if it will be more fat inside, less protein inside. Uh, we integrate real cells that were grown, uh, that were proliferated into our uh, printers, into the, the bioink itself, which is a unique bioink because it can adapt itself to different species. And, and then it's printed in a, in a commercial scale to a product that tastes and looks exactly the same as the fish that we are used to eat today. 
Yeah, I mean, it's quite incredible. There are two types of printers, the, the ready-to-cook printer, which I'm assuming um, is not that that we're showing on the screen now, which actually looked like a, a, a sort of official piece of meat that actually came from a live animal. The holy grail, as we've described it, is one that actually you can start adjusting for flakiness, for marbling, for example, in, in beef products. How close to that are we? So as every new disruptive technology takes time, the, the reason that they are the ready-to-cook printers, because the, the technology level has not reached the point of prosperity and prosperity uh, to produce steaks that are as the steaks that we are, we are used to consume in restaurants. So the ready-to-cook products, they print products that don't need to go under an incubation process. If you take, for instance, a cow, when it is born, it takes a few years until it grows and until it's slaughtered. So the ready-to-cook products, they print the cow at the beginning of this process. It will take a few years in order for us to reach a point that we can produce printers that will commercially scale products that are exactly the same, 100% cultivated meat. But, but we are on the way. We've 3D printed the largest steak ever printed uh, a few years ago, and I think that the... the the level, the level that we've reached today, today with the with the fish products is as high as you can get. Wow, that's a bold claim. Um, give me a sense of the cost ratio at this moment. How much more expensive steak for steak is the created, fully created steak that you're saying right now is just not there in terms of of cost parity relative to just buying a steak off the shelf in a supermarket today? Like how how many how many times greater is the cost today? publicly traded company, the Nasdaq, so I cannot disclose information that was not disclosed to the pro to the public, but um, the industry talks about 2028 as a year that uh, that uh, the industry will reach price parity and we'll see at masses uh, these cultivated, advanced cultivated products in the in the mar market. We will see, I assume, soon uh, products in restaurants, uh, uh, but we're, talk we're talking about a few years. Uh, after 20, this whole cultivated meat industry will be a very significant one as part of the larger uh, meat industry. What about regulation, Eric? What are, what are the regulators saying to you? And I mean, I know Singapore is really hot on this. I know in Israel as well, there's a huge focus on promoting this kind of technology and fostering this because we do need to find meat alternatives in the future. We simply can't continue the way that we have. And I think there is general acceptance of that. What about regulation? I think the most significant hurdle was uh, the United States. The U.S. market is the most significant one. And, uh, and a few days ago, uh, two companies has, have received an approval to begin to sell their products already in, uh, in, the U in the United States. So I think that's the most significant milestone that this whole cultivated meat industry has reached. And I assume, assume that after we, will, we saw the United States legitimize this industry, we will see uh, additional leading uh, countries uh, join uh, legitis uh, regulating this uh, cultivated meat uh, industry. Yeah. And that's and a big market. It. And that's a big market for you guys. Um, there was a lot of excitement about two or three years ago about the meat alternatives or the plant-based food. And then we seem to see a sort of dip in interest and people lost faith, the cost of it, um, the concerns about it not being clean food, I think another big concern. Eric, where are you today and, and how has your conversation with investors evolved as the perception, I think, has evolved of this industry? 
So I think it's a natural process. The the plant-based uh, products are there for for decades. It's not it's not something new. Uh, uh, I think that the the most significant understanding of the plant-based products is one that it's not in intended uh, to, to like large population of people at the end are used and want to eat real meat. And I think that the fact that now we will see more advanced products entering the market, products that are plant-based, but they will contain uh, certain ingredients that are cultivated, it will, it will assumably uh, make these products more healthier because we will take out the the less, uh, the palm oil and other ingredients which are not so healthy, we will replace real cultivated. So I think that the investors um, I think that in the next few months, once we will begin to see uh, products entering the market, I think that the, the, the investors will understand what a, what a huge revolution this whole cultivated meat industry uh, will be. Yes, and we just saw images of Prime Minister Netanyahu trying it as well, and he seemed pretty pleased with it as well. So um, <laughs> looking forward to trying a piece myself. Um, Eric, great to have you on. Thank you so much for chatting to us today, the founder and CEO of Stakeholder. Thank you Foods. for having me. Thank you. Okay, coming up here on First Move, Meta versus Musk. We'll take you inside the ring for a real live cage fight. The very future of social media could be at stake. Welcome back to First Move. The gloves are well and truly off in the Musk versus Zuckerberg billionaire brawl. The two tech bosses promising to meet in the ring for a Las Vegas cage fight actually promise. But anyway, a more consequential face-off may soon be on the cards too. As Meta mulls a Twitter competitor called Threads. There is no one better to discuss this than Anna Stewart. And of course, myself, if we're talking about brawling, Anna, it's perfect for us. Talk to me about what we expect from threads, because for me, the interesting, the most interesting part of this is the two billion watt user base that Instagram has that they have instantaneously should they choose it when they begin. I mean, that is definitely going to help. From what we've seen from what's being teased for Threads, which will launch on Thursday, we're told, it looks and feels a lot like Twitter, whether it's the interface or the functionality. Hey, imitation is the highest form of flattery, isn't it? And this isn't the first social media copycat we've seen, whether it was Instagram Reels, which felt a lot like TikTok, or even Twitter itself earlier this year announcing it would launch encrypted messaging and phone calls, which sounds a little like WhatsApp. But threads, I think, will be an interesting one for two reasons. You mentioned the user base. Already, if this is working off Instagram, it has 2 billion monthly active users on Instagram. So that makes this a very different sort of copycat in that sense. Secondly, it's all about timing. And right now, given that Twitter is in a huge transitional period and not everyone, to put it mildly, thinks it's going all that well, well, there may be plenty of Twitter users who are ripe for the picking. Yeah, we've seen all sorts of alternatives pop up. Mastodon, Blue Sky. So people definitely feel that there's, um, I think, opportunity in the air, perhaps, at this moment. I guess one of my big questions is, if you're looking at the two of these um, leaders, these two businesses and the changes that we've seen, do you trust Mark Zuckerberg more than you trust 
Elon Musk at this moment if you're using this platform and your data as well. Anna, what do you think? Trust is it. Trust is a valuable asset with social media and Meta lost a lot of it in recent years, particularly following the Cambridge Analytica scandal that many will still remember in 2018. I remember interviewing the CTO of Meta a year ago and he said uh, trust arrives on foot and leaves on horseback. It will take a long time for Meta to build that back up. That certainly seems to be the strategy from Twitter fans uh, today. Even this from Jack Dorsey, who posted uh, with a bit of a, a typo, I'd say, all your threads belong to us, and it lists some of the data parameters that threads will be able to access and share and link to users potentially. But frankly, that is something that already exists with Instagram. So if you are targeting Instagram users, well, they're already clearly accepting the level of data use that Meta has access to. So yeah, it's an interesting one, but yes, trust is important here. Yeah, and is Zuckerberg going to pretend uh, stop the scraping in the way that um, Elon Musk and uh, Twitter's tried to do with them consequences this past week? Who wins the cage fight, Anna? Who's your money on? Oh, my money. Oh, I think it's on Elon Musk, even though I would say he's possibly less fit. <laughs> I was talking man. about the social. <laughs> I was talking about social media. Oh, come I on. love that you took this to an actual fight. cage fight. More um, importantly, who would win exactly. between us, Julia? We would never fight, Anna. It's pure love. <laughs> I definitely win. <laughs> She's still smiling. You're She's on. laughing. Yeah. Oh, oh, now we've done it. Anna Stewart. <laughs> Catch me first. I'm a runner. <laughs> Anna Stewart, thank you for that. Oh, from running to tennis. Retired tennis great Roger Federer is taking centre stage once again in more ways than one. He's being honoured today at a ceremony in Wimbledon where he won eight of his 20 Grand Slam titles. Federer also having a ball a few days ago, too, at a Coldplay concert in Zurich. Take a look at this. He was announced as a special guest. Federer is saying in an exclusive interview with CNN's Christina McFarlane that he's enjoying his time away from centre court. I think because I show up in completely different random places nowadays, um, you know, that some people are really surprised and very happy then to all of a sudden see me. I mean, I've had a moment when I did uh, the Orient Express, I was in Venice and a guy chased me down and he was like, oh, can I please take a picture? I'm like, uh, yeah, uh, are you who I think you are? I'm like, no, I don't know who you think I am. He was like, are you Nadal? I'm like, I'm so sorry, I'm not, you know? So I kept on walking and the guy looked at me and goes, such a pity he's not Nadal. And then, but he kept on looking back and, and I thought he was going to maybe figure it out, but he didn't, you know, so that was a quite a... He missed his moment. He missed his moment. Well, he clearly didn't want a picture with me. He wanted the picture with Rafa. But uh, anyway, so I have obviously moments like these. Yeah. Or then like yesterday when I went to the, the Coldplay concert, you know. This kind of came out of nowhere and suddenly you're up on stage performing on stage. with the band. Yeah. How did that come about? The greatest tennis player of all time, Mr. Roger Federer. On Saturday night, uh, Chris Martin, he writes me, he goes like, do you want to come and uh, help us with one of the songs, you know? I'm like, Ugh, really? I don't know. And I was sitting at dinner and uh, I read the message to uh, my wife, my two daughters and some friends. And they're like, oh my God, you got to do it. And Myla, my daughter, looks at me and goes like, Papa, go. You only live once. And I'm like, really? Like, I, I, I should be 50,000 people. And I don't even know what I'm going to do. And then I'm like, you know what, Chris, I'm, I'll do it. What do you want me to do? He's like, all you got to do is do the shaker, you know, <laughs> give a beat to the song. So my, I finished my music uh, career on top because I just retired from music as well the last night. 
in his short career. He's very sweet. Federer, who announced his retirement last year, is being honoured on the second day of this year's Wimbledon Championships. And finally, ET phone home? Well, more like paging Mars. After two months of radio silence, NASA's Ingenuity helicopter is talking once again. The helicopter has been on Mars for two years and made more than 50 flights. But in the middle of its latest mission back in April, contact was lost. Ingenuity finally phoned home last week, easing concerns about what had become of it. So definitely phoning home. That's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.